It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. Las Vegas is rapidly becoming the sports capital of the world, especially with the impact of the Vegas Golden Knights and the anticipated arrival of the Raiders and the building of Allegiant Stadium. So it's a perfect time to talk with my guest, Jim Quinn. He's author of the new book, Don't Be Afraid to Win, How Free Agency Changed the Business of Pro Sports. Jim Quinn is a legendary sports lawyer who spearheaded free agency for every professional sports league, including the MLB, MLS, NFL, and NBA. The book, published by Radius Book Group, is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. And for everything about Jim Quinn, go to jwquinlaw.com. And Jim, welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to talk to you, Ira. The book was fascinating. I like the fact that you pull no punches. And when I say pull no punches, whether it's a team owner or a judge or a fellow lawyer, it's all, it's all in there. But let's just start at the very elementary level for any of our sure. listeners that may not know what free agency is and why it's important. So give us a little synopsis of that. Yeah, uh, let, let me go back in time uh, for decades, really, going way up and through the 50s and 60s, way into the, well into the 70s. In all of professional sports, players were basically serfs. They were tied to their team, and even when their contracts were finished, they had nowhere to go because the contracts included what was called option clauses, and they were perpetually uh, renewed by the owners. and Players had no choice as to where they were going to work, and there was no competition for their services. And it wasn't really until the AFL was formed and began to compete with the NFL, and then later the ABA began to compete with the NBA, that players began to realize that competition was really a good thing, and they should fight for it. And the, the way to fight for it was to try to attain what came to be known as free agency, which simply meant that once a player's contract was over, that was free to negotiate with other teams. It's what America's all about, competition. So you were the spearhead for that, and yet it, it wasn't easy going, as, as you talk about, because you're talking about entrenched interests. Yes, the, the, yeah. the, owner, the owners did not embrace the idea of free agency, to say the least. <laughs> right. uh, they fought tooth and nail against it. They thought it was going to ruin uh you know all of professional sports there was all this hyperbole about how horrible it would be teams would go bankrupt it was a bunch of nonsense uh and as it's you know if you look back now in 2019 you look back over the last 30 years or so as free agencies slowly began to uh move through sport to sport uh it's turned out to be a bonanza not just for the players but for the owners as well in what sense for the owners well i mean uh you now have uh, franchises, if you add up the value of all the franchises in the four major sports, it's over $200 billion. Um, so they're doing pretty well. And uh, the, uh, uh, the fact that they're going to have to share some of that wealth by uh, through the competition for players uh, is actually a good thing. Uh, you, you don't find any owners whining today about the fact that they were about to go bankrupt. <laughs> right, exactly. How did you get involved in that part of it? You were a lawyer, obviously, but how did you decide to get into the fray and what I would call become the lawyer against acronyms? 
which is <laughs> MLB, MLS, NFL, and NBA. <laughs> uh, well, it really, like much happens in life accidental. I was at a big law firm in New York, and uh, they had just filed the first big free agency case, the case which came to be known as Robertson, as an Oscar Robertson versus the NBA. And I was, somebody asked me, would you like to work on this case? And I said, hell yeah. Seems a lot more interesting than, uh, uh, you know, securities litigation. <laughs> or corporate and, law, right. Exactly. Or corporate law, yeah. God knows. And I became friendly with the then head of the union, uh, Larry Fleischer, who was uh, uh, someone who, like Marvin Miller, was able to uh, look forward and, and see what it would really be like if uh, we had free agency. And uh, Larry, ultimately, I got to meet all the other heads of the unions and over time began to representing baseball players and then later football and hockey and uh and we and we began the fight did it become a full-time profession for you not a full-time profession but a full-time segment of your profession meaning battling these various big it, it, owners it, from time to time it, it became almost full-time but it would often be in spurts because you would be fighting for a while then you'd settle then you'd fight again and this would go, you know, in, in, in three or four year uh, increments. But there were times, and I remember in the early 90s, where we were, we were fighting simultaneously in basketball, football, and hockey. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. But in my, in my, uh, in my off time, I, I ended up representing much of corporate America, from Exxon to Disney to Procter & Gamble and Johnson & Johnson. So I, I played both sides of the, of the, uh, of the aisle. And the, the corporate team owners didn't badmouth you to the other corporate owners that you represented in other fields? Uh, yeah, they probably did, but I never knew about it. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that works out very well. Because free agency was such a, a major change, a sea change, really, in sports, how was Bill Bradley involved in that, or was he instrumental in that situation? Oh, no, he, was, he, played a, he did play a critical role. He was one of the, the lead plaintiffs in the Robertson case. Um, back in the seventies, uh, you know, I, and he ended up actually being, uh, one of the key spokesmen. We had to go to Congress to try to block the ABA merger because they, they were trying to get a, a law just like the AFL had done and NFL had done in the sixties to get an exemption to allow them to, uh, allow them to merge. And Bill was the leading spokesman in, you know, against it in Congress. I, I guess he was sort of presaging, uh, his, uh, his political career, which started uh, in not too many years after. Right. He ran for the U.S. Senate and won. Twice. Twice, yes. Uh, and then for the presidency. It cost me a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> were, there, were there some other people that were helpful in a major way to achieve free agency? In addition to Bill Bradley, were there other key people? Now, you don't have to list 10 people, but were there a couple of other people that, from your point of view, helped the cause? Oh well, yeah. I mean, certainly uh, the the you know, Larry Fleischer, the union leaders, Marvin Miller and Don Fear in baseball were critical. And uh, in football, um, you had players like John Mackey, who, who uh, filed one of the early lawsuits uh, as a plaintiff. And of course, Gene Upshaw led the fight uh, in uh, ultimately to free agency in football. And without Gene, it would never have happened. It's an amazing story, and, and because it cuts across all kinds of sports, it makes it even more exciting because it's not limited to one league. You're involved at all, as I 
go through the alphabet again, MLB and MLS and NFL and NBA. Did you ever get the uh, acronyms mixed up and went to plead a case and turned out you were in the wrong league? Well, I I do remember one time we were arguing an appeal and one of my colleagues, we were actually arguing an appeal on behalf of the North American Soccer League. And one of my colleagues kept referring to, to it as the National Hockey League. And I I kept tugging at him to say, no, 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 this is soccer, not hockey. Uh, but uh, that was the only time I can remember. Uh, <laughs> That's pretty good. One of the things that was, it, was interesting was while uh, all of this was going on sort of simultaneously in the different sports, uh, all of it developed differently because each sport is different. You had different personalities. Uh, you had uh, in football people like Tex Schramm and Al Davis who fought tooth and nail against any form of free agency. Uh, and uh, you also had uh, some of the good guys in football like Paul Tagliabue, the commissioner, and Wellington Marion, Dan Rooney, two of the iconic owners of the Giants and, and, and Steelers um, who, uh, who helped uh, bring about uh, a fair system and free agency system in, uh, in football. Was there one, it, this is going to be an odd question, but th- that's why I'm here. Uh, was there one city that had the most impact or import to the legal challenge and the resolutions of any of these suits in the sense of one city or one team in a city that led the way to resolve some of this stuff? Well, I, 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 the, the, the kind of the city that was <laughs> the this, this central place that a lot of this, certainly in football, got resolved was Minneapolis. and. And that was because uh, there was a series of lawsuits over a period of almost 20 years, and they all ended up in Minneapolis for a variety of different reasons. And so uh, that uh, that certainly was a focus. And the other focus, that was mostly football. The other focus uh, was here in New York City, where we filed the original Robertson case, and um, we ended up with a judge, Judge Robert Carter, who oversaw the settlement for more than a decade and he became known to everybody on both sides as just the basketball judge just the basketball judge i like he that. was basketball judge he, yeah he ruled basketball for a decade. so it sounds like he, he was not necessarily aging in place but aging in one case yes well he he, he was he uh whenever there was an issue that came up when we were fighting with the nba owners eventually it would Front of Carter, and uh, he had a great sense of humor. Both sides crazy, and uh, the, and it worked. Did both sides respect the judge? Very much so. Yes. So and, any and des- I, any decision he I, made then was was clearly accepted by both sides. Yeah, and we it, 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 it was followed. It was almost so virtually no appeals from his decision. People just went forward. In fact, I recall some years ago when when the judge passed away, uh, going to the uh, services and. I was sitting next to David Stern uh, and uh, and Mike Cardozo, who were the lawyers for the league. David originally was a lawyer, obviously, then became commissioner. Right. So, yeah, everybody had a lot of respect for that judge. Was he the model for other judges in other jurisdictions to rule? In other words, did other judges in other jurisdictions take over the case and stay with it for maybe not 10 years, but two, three, four, five years? Well, no, actually, in football, there was also... We had a football judge, Judge David Doty, and he oversaw the settlements in football for almost 15 years. 15? Uh, oh, he beat the other guy. <laughs> okay. That's a lot. He actually beat the other guy. 
and uh, and he was also he was terrific too. How does that? I'm just my mind boggles with the idea that a judge would be involved in a case for ten or fifteen years, and not that your side or the other side would object. Just the fact that he would or she would stay with it for that period of time. Well, what what, the, what, what happened was when we entered into these settlements, they were long-term settlements. Both sides agreed that if there were disputes, that we wanted a single judge who was familiar enough with the settlement and with the industry that uh, that judge would be somebody that both sides would respect in terms of the decisions. And a morbid question for you, Jim. Is the 15-year judge still alive, or did he die too? He is. No, no. Uh, knock on wood. Judge Jody is senior but healthy. <laughs> Great. Well, when we get back, I, I have another question regarding salary caps, which we didn't talk about, and also Las Vegas. But we'll be back in a moment. My guest, Jim Quinn, is author of the new book, Don't Be Afraid to Win, How Free Agency Changed the Business of Pro Sports. Jim Quinn is the legendary sports lawyer who spearheaded free agency for every professional sports league, including the MLB, MLS, NFL, and NBA. And you can find him at jwquinlaw.com. We'll be right back. We'll be back with more Talk About Las Vegas with Ira in just a moment. There's something new at the Neon Museum. The emerging technology of light mapping brings old signs back to life. Forgotten artifacts of our past that once blazed in the Las Vegas night are reanimated in a dazzling immersion of sight and sound. You've never seen anything like it because there's never been anything like it. Brilliant, a Neon Museum experience. Performances nightly. Join the experience now at neonmuseum.org. Now let's get back to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Welcome back. I'm talking with Jim Quinn. He's the author of the new book, Don't Be Afraid to Win, How Free Agency Changed the Business of Pro Sports. Jim Quinn is a legendary sports lawyer who spearheaded free agency for every professional sports league, including the MLB, MLS, NFL, and NBA. The book published by Radius Book Group is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. And for everything about Jim Quinn, go to jwquinlaw.com. And Jim, tell us, what is the issue in terms of salary caps. In other words, what was the point of it? What was the contention? And there was never any profit caps on the other side. So what was the, what was the issue there? Yeah, you know, that's a great, that, that's a great question. Um, I'll, uh, uh, the, the history of that really, the first cap salary cap was, was in basketball. And that came about because, as you may recall, in the late 70s and early 80s, um, the NBA was having some trouble. They, uh, they had issues with uh, with drugs and cocaine, and uh, some of the teams were uh, not doing well. In fact, it came to be that when we did audit, there were five or six teams that were on the brink of bankruptcy. And ultimately, we came to the conclusion that in order to save the league, and um, we on the player side, working with David Stern and his team on the on the owner side came up with the idea of having a salary cap that would be tied to revenues. And uh, the salary cap obviously would go up with league revenues. Um, and it was a pretty radical thought at the time. But when you look back at it now, and particularly the NBA, uh, tying uh, the cap to uh, revenues has turned out to be uh, a 
pretty good deal for the players now that players' annual sal- or, uh, average salaries are getting to be t- close to $10 million a year. So it's really more almost like a variable mortgage, a variable salary cap. It wasn't a fixed salary cap. No, it would go up depending on revenues. And since the revenues in all of the sports have continued to go up, in some cases have skyrocketed, obviously the amount of money available for players has gone up exponentially. I want to talk to you a little bit about the first strike that happened. It said that it changed sports forever and evidently lasted 21 minutes or only 21 minutes. Give us a little sense of that, a little sense of that strike. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, that was it goes back to 1964, and it was uh, it, it occurred at uh, the NBA All Star Game, which was being televised for the first time nationally on uh, ABC uh, in a winter day, and uh, the game was be played in Boston, and it was a snowstorm. Somehow, the players made it there. The owners made it there. Players had been trying to get a, a modest pension for several years, and the owners had adamantly refused. Players got together, Larry Fleischer being the new head of the union, and convinced them not to go out uh, and play unless the owners would agree to some form of pension. And uh, the game was supposed to start at 8, 8, uh, 8 p.m. on ABC. Players refused to come out. I'm not sure today what the announcers were thinking as there was no players on the court. And within uh, a, a few minutes, the owners caved, uh, and Walter Kennedy, the then commissioner of the NBA, told Larry Fleischer, okay, you can have a pension. Please, please have them come out and play. <laughs> and after 21 minutes, they did come out and play. And, uh, it turned out that Oscar Robertson was the uh, uh, one, the, the uh, uh, player of the game. Uh, and, of course, he later <laughs> led the lawsuit a few years later that led to free agency. So he's clearly a hero in, the, in that world. No question. I have to ask you about Las Vegas. Are you surprised at the changes and growth in Las Vegas of sports? You have the Vegas Golden Knights. You've got now the Raiders, which, by the way, you were involved in at one point. You were hired by fans, not owners or the city or the county in Oakland, but you were hired by fans to try to keep the team there. Uh, actually, uh, we still have a lawsuit. We've, we've brought a lawsuit on behalf of the city, uh, not to keep the Raiders, uh, but just to get damages for the Raiders leaving. Uh, the Raiders are clearly going to Vegas. There's no question about that. And uh, going to play, I guess, in a brand new stadium. Right. Yeah, I, I, I think it is a little surprising given that for decades – uh, all the sports said, oh, my God, we can't go to Las Vegas because we go, it's kind of gambling, blah, blah, blah. And uh, suddenly, like uh, any good entrepreneurs, they turned around and said, you know, we could probably make a lot of money if, if we put teams in Las Vegas. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and there you have it. And of course, you have the incredible story of your, your, uh, your hockey team. Oh, that, yes. Uh, you know, it is uh, one of those you know, truly special stories about sports. Here you got an expansion team vying for the Stanley Cup in his first year. That's, uh, that's pretty amazing. It is, and the town has really embraced the team and continues to embrace the team. And I, I go to games, and I, I'm not even a hockey fan initially. I didn't even know what hockey was other than there was ice involved. But I, I go to <laughs> games, so you're right. So we won't discuss the particulars of the legal case, but it's fascinating to me that you are still involved in that world. And why did you decide to write the book? 
You know, I thought uh, that uh, it was just a story that kind of needed to be told. I mean, you and I can reminisce about uh, the history because we lived through some of it. But, you know, the younger fans uh, today really have no idea how all of this came to be. And I thought it would be a nice history lesson. I think that the book is, is light reading. It's easy for people to understand. Uh, it's not overly larded with legal crap. Uh, and, <laughs> I like that term, legal crap. <laughs> and I, and I and I I just thought it was a is an important thing for uh, to people to to know about. And as I mentioned earlier, you don't pull any punches. You're you are an equal opportunity attacker, <laughs> so to speak. Whether it's I a, tried, I try, I just tried to be fair. That's right, all I can do right. is be fair. Right. Who was the most interesting character you dealt with? Whether it was an owner, a judge, uh, another lawyer, a player. Who's the most interesting character you dealt with in your career representing uh, players or the other side in terms of some of these issues? I, I guess it, I, I'd have to pick two, and both of them for somewhat different reasons. Um, Larry Fleischer, because he was he was at the forefront from the very beginning, uh, and was in many ways, my mentor, uh, was a fascinating human being, uh, very, very smart and, uh, and could see the future, whether it was free agency or, uh, agreeing to have a drug agreement and collective bargaining agreement, which was something he negotiated. Uh, and he taught me uh, a lot about not just, uh, sports, but, uh, about life and about, um, uh, about how to be a good lawyer. And the other one would be Gene Upshaw, who uh, sadly passed away some years ago, but uh, was uh, somebody who had uh, guts and courage, not just as a great football player, but as a leader of men and uh, was willing to sacrifice everything uh, to fight for uh, what he thought was right. Those are those are two. Marvin Miller comes in as a close third. He was a fascinating human being as well. I think you're right. People at a certain age, of a certain age, will know automatically what you're talking about, and it'll remind them of the battles and what was accomplished. Younger people will read your book and see what it took to get from point A to point B, and it was not an easy road. Uh, no, there were a lot of bumps along the road. That's for sure. We did not win everything, and we win all the time. How did you retain your sense of humor during all these? years you know uh i you when you're when you're in these battles and 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 i've tried a lot of cases even out of outside of sports somehow you just gotta because uh, you know you're gonna get uh you're gonna they're gonna there's gonna be good and there's gonna be bad and you just gotta accept them both together and accept them with some sense of humility and with good humor did you ever get frustrated with the either the judge or representatives of the other sides? Oh, God, and with the other side, yeah, all the time. The yeah. judge is not so much, you know, that you, you get used to the fact that you're going to win some and you're going to lose some. Right. Um, and, you know, as long as you have a sense that they're calling balls and strikes reasonably fairly, uh, you, 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 just, uh, you just deal with it. Uh, but, yeah, certainly there were times, uh, particularly dealing with uh, the NFL owners that uh, – uh, it, would, it, it it could be difficult. Does your family look at you sometimes, and are they amazed at what you've accomplished in the world of sports, legal sports? Not really. Not really. <laughs> not really. You know, it's just dad. 
uh, whatever. <laughs> Did the, your family read your book? Uh, yeah, they're they're all getting copies for Christmas. So oh, we'll good. See I'll, I'll I'll give you I'll give you a full report after they've read it. Excellent, because they should at least be in awe of their own father or husband or nephew or whatever. So yeah, the larger family, so to speak, in that sense. Looking ahead, you clearly are still representing Oakland in terms of the Raiders lawsuit. Are you still going to stay in the sports legal world game? I guess is the way. Yeah, I mean, to the more now as an advisor than anything else. A little bit in in hockey and basketball, and uh, uh, but uh, you know, I'm going to leave the rest of it to the uh, next generation because it's a lot of work, isn't it? It is indeed. It certainly was. And I understand billable hours, but even so, it's still a chunk of time that you are putting in, in, in no, that sense. No question. Yeah. No question. Okay. If you had to pick one of the leagues that was the easiest to deal with versus the hardest to deal with, what would that be? In other words, was the NBA the easiest and was the NFL not or vice versa? Or well, uh, the NBA started out being <laughs> difficult, but they became uh, easier over time. The NFL was always the hardest to deal with. Why do you think that was? Uh, you know, I, I think the level of arrogance and greed in the NFL is higher than it is in the NBA. <laughs> <laughs> but at some point, they have to face reality and go, okay, well, we have to do something here, I would think. That's correct. <laughs> What's the greatest lesson that you learned from all of this? You know, I guess the, the, the biggest lesson, is because you, as you know, you're going to have ups and downs when you're having these fights, is just stay with it and keep fighting until you get, you could accomplish something. And and in fighting these kind of fights, you have to recognize at some point you're going to compromise in order to make sure that you can get most of what you need. And how do you stay level-headed? I, when the New York Times says that you are instrumental in helping change the face of major professional sports. How do you keep your feet on the ground, so to speak, and just keep doing your work? Uh, I, I don't pay a lot of attention to that stuff. I mostly deal with it as nonsense, and you move on. Same reason that, for example, you're lauded by the New York Times, but you're not lauded necessarily by your family, but it doesn't matter because you're going to do what you're going to do. It's pretty much the case. Absolutely. <laughs> if you had one tip for a budding lawyer that wants to enter that same part of the legal world and deal with sports teams, what would that be? It, to, to stay at it because it's you know, it's kind of a closed business and there's a lot of people who want to get in it. And so you, you really want to, uh, if you're really interested in it, um, you want to uh, be checking to see where the openings are, whether it's with a league or with a player's union or with some other sports organization like IMG on the agent side, um, you just got to keep plugging away until you fight your way in. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Jim Quinn. He's the author of the new book, Don't Be Afraid to Win, How Free Agency Changed the Business of Pro Sports. Jim is the legendary sports lawyer who spearheaded free agency for every professional sports league, including the MLB, MLS, NFL, and NBA. And you can reach him for more information at Law. Com. And Jim, thanks for being on the show. Great talking to you. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Hey, Las Vegas.